you want to take your Bibles, turn with me to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8. Normally I'd read the text that we're going to be considering, but we're going to kind of read that as we go this morning, trying to finish up this chapter. So just as you turn there, just with your ears, listen as you turn with your hands, we continue our consideration of this group of exiles, men, women, children, born and raised their entire lives somewhere other than Israel. And they, they are there because of the sins of their forefathers. They are exiles living in Persia. But God has now intervened in the hearts of two kings, first King Cyrus, and we looked at that in the first six chapters, and now 80 years later, chapter 8, King Artaxerxes moving in the heart of a king to lead his people back to the promised land. And so we've been looking in chapter 8 at preparations this second group of exiles are making under the leadership of a scribe named Ezra. So Ezra chapter 8, we'll begin in, in verse 24 here in just a few moments. I assume it's not all that controversial if I say something like, life often requires us to do hard things. That's not controversial, right? I mean, we all recognize this as the nature of life. We all face circumstances. We end up following paths that often are not easy. Now, when I say something like that, what may first come to mind are the circumstances we face that are maybe out of the ordinary, unusually difficult, challenging days, right? Trials, tribulations, some of them of our own making, some of them just the result of living in this world, whatever the case may be, we think sometimes about hard things having to be done when life is hard. But that's not necessarily the case. I mean, I mean, if you think about it, your life is full of things. I say your life. I don't want to speak for you. My life is full of things that are at least harder than they are easier. Let's think of some examples. Is it harder to eat or to eat healthy? Right? I could polish off a pine and Ben and Jerry's like nobody's business. The celery is going to take a minute to work through, right? <laughs> one, one is way easier than the, than the other. So, so there are just some basic things, right, that we face that are harder than others. How about this? Is it easier just to sit on the couch and binge watch something or to get out and exercise? Well, it, it's harder to get out and exercise. How about this one? Is it easier to spend money or work for it and save it? Okay, so these examples, I know they're not brilliant, but you recognize there are things you have to do every day that fundamentally, I mean, they're just a part of your everyday life. These things are harder than they are easier. In order to to enjoy life in any meaningful way, we've got to be willing to do some of those harder things. But our tendency is the easy path. Now, don't misunderstand that. I'm not suggesting that just because something is easy, it is necessarily the wrong way. I'm also a big believer. Sometimes it's better to work smarter rather than harder. Okay? All right? So there there are elements in which this may not play out in its entirety, but there's a lot of ways in which we've got to make commitments 
to do hard things. I would suggest it's the same in Christian living. I know when we think of having to do the hard things in Christian living, we might naturally just associate that with, uh, again, these, these traumatic or, or at least difficult hard moments where we are called upon to exercise faith. And that's certainly going to happen. But then there are just regular Christian things that we've got to do. They're not always easy. And I hope it's okay if your pastor's going to come out and he's going to admit some of these things. But I don't know of anybody who would say repenting of sin is easy. Overcoming temptation. How about asking for forgiveness? How about giving forgiveness? Reading your Bible? Praying? Sharing the gospel? I mean, these are just a few of the examples. These are kind of basic Christian things, right? But let's... To be honest, at least with ourselves and our own hearts and minds, sometimes these things can be harder rather than easier. The reason I bring this up is because I would encourage us to think a little more broadly about these things that really we do well for ourselves when we start to embrace the fact that the call of discipleship is a call to consistently commit ourselves to hard things. Things that, that our own nature, our culture would encourage us to take the easy way out, but God in His Word comes back and says, no, that's not how we're going to do things. I think the story of the exiles is a good example of this, though this is a story of a really hard thing in a really hard time. I mean, here we have these men, women, and children, about 5,000 of them, who've now gathered at the river in Babylon... And they're going to make a thousand-mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. Five thousand of them. Again, men, women, children. Those, those who are older, many of whom have not ever trained for something like this. And there are all kinds of challenges along the way, not the least of which would be enemies. But God has called them. He's called them to leave the comfort of Babylon to leave the comfort of what would be friends, maybe family, homes, resources, material things, a life. These Jews living in Persia have never known life in Jerusalem. They don't have the foggiest idea of what a temple would have looked like or what the practices around it would have been. And now God is telling them to leave all of that and to go back to Jerusalem to re-engage as God's people under God's covenant? It's a big deal. And so in order to get this done right, there, there, there are some commitments they have to make. I mean, I, I would contend fundamental, basic things, but they can be hard things. Preparations they've got to engage in in order to do this well. This is what we've been looking at for the last several weeks. All right, now, we've already looked. If you've got a bulletin, you want to fill in some blanks. There'll be a couple of blanks to fill in. We've already considered three of them. What I would say are three of the, three of the important commitments that God's people, the exiles, have to make in order to fulfill God's design for them. They need the right kind of leadership. Took a week and talked about leadership. They need service. In other words, God's people need servant-oriented people in order, in order to thrive as the people He's designed them to be. And then last week we looked at devotion. We left Ezra and the exiles again 
at the side of the river, camping out for three days, making these preparations before they begin the long journey. And they do so by, Ezra calls them to a, a season, a time of prayer and fasting. In fact, he specifically says, we need to seek the Lord's direction. We need to know the way, the right way for us to go. And really what is, what is behind this is the fact that Ezra has talked a pretty big game to King Artaxerxes. He's told him the good hand of God is upon us. And he said, God will, in essence, a, a summary here, God, God will see fit to provide for his people And so what Ezra wants to do, in spite of the fact he's about to take all these people through very dangerous circumstances, he's going to turn down the king's offer to send a military escort with them. It's a bold move. It's already a hard enough journey. But now now this is what he's going to do. And so he calls his people to exhibit and express this kind of devotion, determination, commitment, trust in the Lord. All right, we're going to look at a couple more. And I know what you're thinking. No way, pastor. You're in verse 24. I can count. This goes through verse 36. Challenge accepted once again. I did a Wednesday night. All right, I got through everything Wednesday night. We'll see if we can do it this morning. All right? So number four, the fourth principle, I think the fourth, keeping in light of the theme we began with, kind of the fourth hard thing that we've got to do. And I almost hate to say this is a hard thing to do, but it can be. And that is to be people of integrity. God expects his people to be people of integrity. And I I would then add this language to it. So the the word in the blank would be integrity, but you could add to it that God's people would be a trustworthy people. I'd love to say that that God's people as a whole have a reputation in the world as being the most trustworthy of people. Hmm. That's not exactly right, right? But this is certainly what God calls on His people to be. So notice how this fleshes itself out. Beginning in verse 24, just follow with me as I read. And I separated 12 of the leaders of the priest, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brethren with them, and weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the articles, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present had offered. I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 gold basins worth 1,000 drachmas, and two vessels in fine polished bronze, precious as gold. So, so stop there for just a moment. All right, so here's what he does, and you may want to remember this part of the story. Part, part of what Artaxerxes did for Ezra and this group of exiles, he took up an offering. He encouraged the people all across his land to give to these men and women. And then he opened up the royal treasury to them. So this is an accounting of that. That's not a surprise, by the way, that this is what Ezra would do. Ezra is a scribe. So if he were living in 21st century, right, this would be a spreadsheet guy, all right? Ezra would be a pie chart, uh, bar, you know, chart. He'd be that kind of guy. There's some in here, all right? Uh, if you can open Excel, you're a, that's a happy day for you. All right, so that's Ezra. He's going to list all this stuff out. And, and so he's going he's to make sure that that which was given to him by the king and by Israel, that's what he says here, by the king, by Israel, by all of these people who gave a free will offering, he weighs it out in front of these leaders and puts it in their hand. All right? 
making sure that what was given to him is given to them. Now, because, because Ezra does not give us like a line item of every single little thing, it's hard to put a number on this, but all the estimates I read about the value of this material puts it in today's terms in the millions of dollars. We're not talking just seven figures. Some suggested eight figures. Millions of dollars worth of material. Gold, silver, precious items. Again, a gift worthy of a king, right? I mean, a gift that would represent that which a king might would give. And so what is Ezra really careful to do? He ca- I don't know how long this would have taken, all right? This, is, this would not be a fun part of the camping trip they're taking here, but he's taking all of this stuff and weighing it. How they're carrying it, I don't have any idea. There's 5,000 people, all right? There's about 1,500 men. Ten, Twelve of them are given specific charge here. You're responsible for these items. He makes sure to put into their hands what was put into his hands, and he accounts for it. Because this is going to show up again. Because in, I don't know, a month or two or three from now, when they show up in Jerusalem, there's going to be a third step. And everything that went into Ezra's hands, that went into their hands, better go into the hands of the priests when they get to the temple. There better not be a dime missing from this stuff. Ezra makes sure that they handle these material resources with accountability, with integrity. He wants to make sure they get from A to B. And so he's a guy who makes sure there's an accounting of it, we're recording all of it, but he, he ups the ante of it, so to speak. Notice what, what goes on then in verse 28. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also. And the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel and Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites receive the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. So Ezra, again, he makes this a little bit more intense. He says, so not, not only am I, am I entrusting this to you, I'm identifying both the servant and the resources as holy to the Lord. Now, you need to understand that phrase. What that means is that that doesn't necessarily bear with it. When we hear the word holy, kind of our, our go-to, our default is to think about maybe ethics or morals, and that's certainly a part of being holy, but in this case, the language is more directed at its fundamental meaning, which that which is holy is set apart unto God and to God alone. So what's he saying here? He's saying, well, the leaders and the stuff that they're getting, they are sacred unto God. They are set apart unto the Lord, the ones carrying it and the stuff they're carrying. So this means, again, not a bit of it can be used for anything else along the journey, all right? Whatever else may come to mind. We've got millions of dollars. How about a few camels to ride, all right? Or I don't know what it would have been, but you know what? Whatever may come to mind, we're not doing it. 
This is holy unto God. You're holy unto God. And so he makes them all accountable here. What I appreciate so much about what Ezra has done here, Ezra is establishing very clearly this principle. And I would contend this is a hard thing to do sometimes. But we desperately need to be people of integrity. People who are trustworthy. I wish I could stand up here and say... There aren't any stories out there of churches, pastors, and leaders who have mishandled the money entrusted to them. Anybody here aware of a story or two or 2,000 of them, right? And, you know, I'm not going to just dive into all of the examples of ways in which it seems like there, there are a lot of people out there who are really, who, who are going to the bank off the backs of God's people and enjoying a, a really good life, at least in an earthly sense. This does such tremendous damage to the witness of the church, and I would contend the, the, the ability to effectively Share the gospel and make disciples. I, I mean, is, isn't it a little disconcerting that organizations like Microsoft or Apple or Walmart have stricter requirements by law than the church? That you can know more about what... There are, there's mountains of information about, about life in those companies. Sometimes, though, church life, mm. you, you would think that church members asking a church what's being done with their money, you, you would think that is one of the great offenses somebody could commit against God himself. I, I've, I've said all along about our church, you may not, I cannot promise you you will agree with everything we do with money. In fact, I can promise you there may be some things you will disagree with, all right? I'll just go ahead and say that, group this size, but you can know it. You can know it. Say, Pastor, are you serious? Yeah, just call me. Whatever you want to know, call me. I'll tell you. You may not like it, all right? You may. You may love it. I don't know. Just, just, you know, just as an aside here, just to say, we've tried very hard to make sure we handle these resources with integrity. It can be a hard thing. There's easier ways to do this, by the way. There are easier ways to do this. But in order to do it in a way that we can be trustworthy. All right, but let's move beyond just kind of the, the thought about the church as a whole. Let me kind of, if you don't mind, say, what difference is it going to make if I mind? You're going to keep going anyway. It doesn't matter. All right. What if I turn it back on you, all right? Let, sorry, Bill. All right, let me ask you. Are you trustworthy with the resources God has given to you? In fact, let, let's, let's take that even up a bit higher, at least make it clearer. Can God trust you with his resources? I think it's a pretty good question. It's a hard question. And by the way, when I say resources, I do not just mean material. I mean, I do include material. I mean, in other words, money. 
and those kinds of material resources, but let's broaden that even more because we recognize everything we've got, we've got because God's given it to us. We don't own anything. The Bible seems pretty clear. We are stewards of what has been entrusted to us. The question is, are we good stewards or not? And so that includes your time, your skill, your talents, your gifts, your place in life, the opportunities given to you, are you taking advantage in the godliest of ways, the resources entrusted to you? When we talk about integrity, we're going way beyond just kind of these basic ideas of a church handling money well. I mean, I think that would be a very clear, direct application, but let's consider then even personally. Am I the kind of believer that God would trust with his resources? Integrity. All right, let's go on to number five. Last one. Told you I'd do it, and you're saying, yeah, but you're going to go long. All right, it's fair, but not too long. All right, number five, number five, dependence. Dependence. I think the final principle here that is illustrated, and, and one that, that I think, again, is, is, is a, can be a hard thing, but at the same time a necessary one, the rest of the story, verses 31 through 36, then demonstrates all of the commitments they'd made, all of the lip service they'd been giving, they do. They engage in it. The rest of the story then tells us all of these plans and preparations are put into place. So verse 31. Then we departed from the river of Hava, and on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. Does anybody else want more information there? boy, I do. God doesn't give it, all right? That's all he says. I would love to know, how did this work? Because now, again, we got 5,000 people. Uh, we, we've even got, you know, little bitty children among them, perhaps even babies, all right? And, and you got to wonder, how did these people, without a military escort, how was it that the good hand of God was upon them and delivered them from the hand of the enemy, all right? The, the Bible doesn't say, it does, you know, I, I would love to know, was there some smoting going on? You know, like the light bolts, lightning bolts from heaven, fireball, the ways God did things in the past, open up the ground, swallow people, whatever. I don't know how he did it, but, but what's impressive here is the fact that they commit themselves to the path that God had revealed to them when they prayed and fasted, and they depended upon the Lord. See, here's a principle that you can, that perhaps would be well for us to meditate on, especially in light of the fact God doesn't always give us this kind of information that we might would like to see. And so perhaps this is the issue. Perhaps the issue is not how God cared for his people, but that God cared for his people. Do I need anything else? Do I need anything more than time after time, example after example, especially in the Old Testament, but even in the New, of God providing for his people? What does this mean? That you and I, as God's people, can depend upon him. It might be hard. It calls for faith. We've got to put our, our, our money, as they say, where our mouth is. We talked about that last week. We've got to put feet to faith. We've got to move. This is what they do. And God delivered them because his good hand was upon them. And so it tells us in verse 32, so we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. Now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with him were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. With the number and weight of everything, 
all the weight was written down at that time. So what is all of that designed to say? Everything that happened in the previous passage, every bit of it made it from A to B. That's amazing. We're talking millions of dollars worth of material. All of it made it because they weighed it all back out. But I don't know, Ezra unrolled the scribe, uh, the, the, the unrolled the scroll that he would have scribed upon all of the material, all that they had done, and it all matches up. Yeah, yeah, same amount, same silver, same gold, same items. Everything makes it. And so then it says in verse 35, the children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river, so they gave support to the people and the house of God. Again, this to me is such a profound example because it means that they did exactly what God told them to do. And what do they demonstrate here? Aside from just pure obedience, they demonstrate dependence. They took God at his word and they followed, they obeyed. God brings them to Jerusalem. I find it really important that the first thing they do is they offer a sin offering. I mean, they acknowledge fundamentally what they have done by coming out of Persia and coming back to Jerusalem, it very much is an image of coming out of the world and back to being a part of the people of God. And what do they need to do to begin with, but to deal with what may be the ways in which they had been unrighteous, had sinned, had violated God's covenant. Again, we're talking about children and grandchildren of the original people that sinned in Israel and were taken into exile in the first place. And so the, these people then surrender themselves to the Lord, really declaring their ultimate dependence upon Him, committing to doing God's way, no matter how hard it might be. Now, as we conclude this, just a couple of points again to, to draw our attention to. I cannot overemphasize. Now, you may disagree. You say, no, Pastor, you are overemphasizing it. But I would suggest I can't overemphasize this. God will consistently call upon you to do hard things. Do not assume that those hard things are only going to need to be done in hard times. There's probably some hard things we should be doing fairly regularly. (laughs) Which, by the way, makes the hard times easier to do the hard things in if we're already doing these things. God's path is rarely the easiest one. Now, I'm not suggesting it's always painful or sorrowful, though sometimes it can be. But we need to be committed to being this kind of people, a devoted people, a a dependent people, people of integrity, committed to service, right leadership, these things that may be hard in the culture we live in. Here's a second thought. In spite of the fact that God's people are being taken through this immense, radical, profound change in life and circumstances, do you notice that God calls on them to do some very old and old-fashioned things? I love this part of the story. 
It's, it, it's why I entitled the entire series through this chapter what I did. Times may have changed, but God has not. Do, do you know at what point God decided, well, we're going to go from not being a people of the word to being a people of the word? Never. God's always expected us to be people of the word. How about prayer? Is there a time where God said, okay, now here's what we're going to do. Uh, I want you, you're not, you weren't praying before, but I want you to be praying people now. No, never. Prayer's always been a thing. What about integrity? What about obedience? What about dependence? What about trust? What about all these qualities that we've looked at? Are are any of these items, are these like innovative, new, cutting-edge things? No. No, their lives have changed radically, but God calls them to ground themselves in very fundamental principles. Times may have changed, but God is not. And what God expects of his people is still what God expects of his people, I, that's probably not something you're going to write down, all right? You know, that's not profound, but that, that is a good lesson for us to remember. This is the nature of what it means to follow him, to love him, to obey him, to trust him. Now, let, let, let me then encourage you as we close, before we then sing another great song about the hope that, that is found in Christ and the blessings we'll enjoy in him forevermore. Because we've gone through all of this, and and some of it may sound like what I'm asking you to do is just kind of grin and bear it, to, to like dig deep and find this extra level of effort and really just kind of dig in. That's not what I'm asking you to do. See, because all of this, doing the hard things... Being the people of God in a culture that wants us to be anything and everything but the biblical people of God. It's a hard thing trying to be that. The good news here, it doesn't depend upon your own power. What is so profound here is that I I have called on you to live a certain way. The Bible has called on you to live a certain way. And God in His grace, through a crucified and resurrected Lord, as a result of the work of the gospel in your life and the provision of the Spirit, the Bible makes it clear, God's given me everything I need for life and godliness. You lack nothing, church. You lack nothing to do the hard thing. God's already supplied you with sufficient resource, with sufficient power, with sufficient uh, support group. God supplied you with everything you need to do this well because of his gospel, because of what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. So what do we do? Well, we take all of this and we live our lives in light of the gospel. We avail ourselves of the resources God has given to us. Put one foot in front of the other and we obey. We love and we live and we serve and we trust. We can be the people of God because God is still in this world redeeming people to himself in Christ Jesus and he's entrusted us with the mission of taking that message to the ends of the earth. Will we be that kind of a people? Of course, I'd make an appeal here to anybody who does not know Christ. If you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, I would implore you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess that you are a sinner, 
that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, to recognize being saved, being right with God, having your sins forgiven, is not a matter of doing more good works and less bad works. It is only in the grace given to you in Christ when by faith you trust in Him. If you've never trusted in Christ, I would implore you to do just that, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know more about that, I'll be down front. The pastors will be down here at the end of the service. We'd love an opportunity to talk with you more about what it means to believe this gospel. But as God's people, will you commit yourselves to doing the hard things? Because the gospel is worth it, our God and His glory is worth it, and the people that live in this city desperately need a people. They don't think they need it, but they do, all right? They need a people committed to this. Will we? Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we will once again thank God for what Christ has done for us now and forevermore. Father God, we do thank you for the gathering of your people, privilege that we've come together in your name. We pray that we have been a blessing to you and a blessing to one another. And we thank you for this word. We pray, God, that you by your spirit would bring it to bear on our lives as we seek to live lives that glorify you. We trust our lives into your hands. Use us as you see fit, as a means to your end and for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.